lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I want to begin by welcoming new members to our online Still Growing listener community on Facebook. It's in this Facebook group that's called the Still Growing Podcast Group on Facebook. And they are Nicole Hall Van Harrelveld, Lizzie Doyle, Joanne Scott Bunker, Peggy Ann Montgomery, she'll be on an upcoming show as a guest, Carl Kuntz, Danielle Bartholomew, and Danny Perkins, who's been a great contributor already. We've gotten to see some pictures from his garden. And then Susan Vollenweider, who's going to be on an upcoming show uh, next week where we're talking about ordering spring bulbs. And Susan is a columnist for the Kansas City Star, as well as a podcaster, one of the podcasters on the History Chicks podcast. And Susan is going to join me along with Frau Zinni, Jen McGinnis, and uh, Julie Thompson Adolph of the blog Garden Delights. And we are going to be making our picks from the Color Blends and Van England catalogs, making our top five selections. And then we're going to be speaking with Tom from Color Blends and Joanne from Van England. And they're going to bless our selections and also make some suggestions based on some of the new and exciting things they have in the catalog, in addition to giving us tips and pointers on how to plant our spring bulbs so that we can have a great spring show in our 2017 gardens. So if you'd like to join our Facebook group, all you have to do is go to Facebook and then search Still Growing Podcast Group. It's our listener community. It's a great place to ask questions. You can share your own garden stories, interact with the great guests that are featured on Still Growing, and also connect with other listeners of the show. And it's also where I post all of the really awesome garden giveaways giveaways and promotions for my guests and sponsors, and there's certainly going to be one with today's show. So I'm really excited about that. So go ahead and check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. It's also where I curate and post some interesting things that I read during the week. And this week, I feature a post from Alan Bush. And this post was on Garden Rant, and it caught my attention because the title of it's called The Fantabulous Tomato Sandwiches of Ralph Haas and Sarah Owens. And Sarah Owens is a James Beard award-winning cookbook author for her cookbook, Sourdough. And she makes a tomato sandwich that is featured in this post that is, oh my gosh, it stopped me in my tracks. And I had to read this post. And it's on my list of things to make this week in the kitchen, a really good tomato sandwich. I also shared a post from a local nursery here in town called Tonkadale. They posted a brand new Monarch video that was shot at their nursery, and all of the photos and videos were edited together by a guy at the nursery called Butterfly Bill. And I tell you what, it is a fantastic video, a Monarch video. So if you're looking for some Monarch inspiration or you have a Monarch Monday kind of post thing that you do, this would be a great thing to share. I'm taking the kids there actually this week because they also have, uh, I think, 15 they mentioned that are in the chrysalis stage right now um, at the nursery and 10 caterpillars that are chomping away on milkweed. So it'll be a great opportunity to show the kids 
um, these monarchs in various stages at the nursery. So, oh, and there's also a cool video that I posted uh, this past week of a ladybug taking off in flight. And if you think that their wings are limited just to the orange and black spotted hard outer shell, you are so wrong. There is a hidden pair of wings that comes out from underneath. They kind of unfurl and they look like the flaps of an airplane. I kid you not. So go check that out. It's an awesome, very mesmerizing video of a ladybug taking off in flight. So if you want to check these out, head on over to the Still Growing Podcast Group. That's our listener community on Facebook. Well, we start this week with our eight-week series of All the President's Gardens. You know, we were going to try to cover uh, two chapters a week, and then someone suggested to me that we just do one chapter a week, and then that would take us all the way up to the presidential election. And I like the timing of that. So I think that's what we're going to do. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and buy Uh, Let's see. It is Marta McDowell's All the President's Gardens. And what I wanted to check for you were the prices. You can get it on Amazon for $20, about $20. Uh, And the Kindle version is $14. So however you choose to get the book, we'll be starting that this week. And we're going to be starting with the very first chapter. It's called Versailles on the Potomac, and it covers the White House grounds during the decade starting with 1790. So go ahead and get the book, and then you can read along with us. All the posts for this online book club are going to be in our still-growing listener community, and I'll be posting kind of some supplemental material as well as questions that you can be reviewing or using if you're a garden club and you want to follow along as kind of a fall activity in your garden club this year. Well, my garden tip for you this week is to open up that garden, especially if you're in a northern garden and you recognize that we're probably about six to eight weeks away from wrapping up the season. So one of the things I do starting in September is begin to open my garden up to friends and family who are interested in putting together bouquets for their fall tables. It's a great way to share your garden with others, but it's also a sneaky way to get a head start on cutting back and cleaning up your fall garden. Of course, there's some habitat that I leave standing in some of my beds, but in the cutting gardens, I love to open them up to friends, and this is the perfect time of year to get going on inviting people into your garden. Well, my guest today is Anna Thomas, and I have been waiting to release this episode because it's one of my favorites. I learned so much from Anna, and I love to tell people that when I first started researching her background, I had stumbled on a a bio that had started talking about Anna Thomas Filmmaker, and I quickly breezed through those because I thought, oh, no, I'm looking for a cookbook author, and then I started to put together that, oh, my gosh, this one woman is so versatile and talented that she not only is a cookbook author, but really her day job is being a filmmaker. And she serves on the faculty of the American Film Institute. Her One of her films has been a, an Academy Award nominee. She, I am so in awe of this woman. But today she's on the show because of her cookbook, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore. She also wrote The Vegetarian Epicure in 1973. 
2023, and that book transformed the landscape of vegetarian cooking. And Anna shares with us the tremendous story of how she got started as a cookbook author. It is just something else. So wait to hear about that. Talk about uh, filmmaking. That story alone could be the basis for a movie. So I know you're going to enjoy that. I, I just found it thoroughly amazing, so captivating, and so sensational, really, when you think about this book coming together in the early 70s, before social media, just the timing and the circumstances surrounding the publication of that first cookbook for Anna Thomas. Uh, Wow, you're going to love it. The other cookbook that she is well known for is her cookbook, Love Soup, and that won a James Beard Award. And it's perfect timing, I think, for fall to go out and get a cookbook called Love Soup. So if you're not familiar with that, that's worth checking out. And Anna has a pretty spectacular special event coming up on September 23rd. If you're in Chicago, you won't want to miss it. It's at 6.30. It runs from 6.30 to 8.30 at Read It and Eat in Chicago. So it's September 23rd, and it's a very special tasting and talk featuring Anna Thomas. So Anna's going to be there and she's going to be presenting on her new cookbook, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, the subject of our chat today. But then also she will be preparing some of the recipes from her cookbook. And many of these we're talking about on the show today. So included in the special tasting are her crostini with mojo verde, fresh corn polenta. Uh, Let's see, there's a a farmhouse mushroom ragu, uh, her roast chicken stuffed with lemons. And then finally, of course, there has to be a dessert. Anna includes an entire section of desserts in this cookbook. And for the tasting, she's including her pumpkin gingerbread. So if that's making you hungry, this episode definitely will. Take a listen to my interview with Anna Thomas. Well, hello there, Anna. I am so delighted that I get a chance to speak with you today. And we are going to spend our time talking about your latest cookbook, which is Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore. But first, before we do that, let's have you share a little bit about yourself. Well, I would love to do that. And thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have the chance to talk to you and to talk to gardeners. Yes. Basically, the thing that I think people who who use cookbooks need to know about me is I'm a home cook. I'm not a chef. I've never worked professionally as a chef. I don't have a restaurant. I don't. I'm not a caterer. I'm not any of those things. I'm a home cook. So I think I understand the home cook, you know? Yes. And uh, uh, because basically my day job, so to speak, is I'm a screenwriter and a filmmaker. Um, but I've been cooking and writing about food since I left home and went to college. That's when it all started. Mm. When I went away to UCLA, I had to find a way to, you know, feed myself because I certainly couldn't afford to go out to eat. And also I was becoming a vegetarian around that time and there wasn't a lot out there for us. This was back in the the early 70s. And they're, they're really, even in California, even in Los Angeles, there really wasn't a lot out there for vegetarians. So for one reason and another, I kind of had to learn to cook. And I hadn't cooked much when I lived at home, but I started cooking and I found I loved it. And it's, it's interesting what happened because then 
all of these things I realize now, all these things sort of clicked in. Like the fact that I lived in a house where there was home cooking going on all the time as part of daily life, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. Even if you're not doing it, even if somebody's not saying, here's how you make this, you know? Yes. Just the fact you absorb that, that that's what happens. And so I started cooking. And of course, I was sort of uh, becoming a vegetarian at that time. And by the way, that was not a decision that I made uh, at some point. I didn't say, okay, I'm going to be a vegetarian starting tomorrow, and here's what I'm going to do. It was just something I realized that was happening. Gradually, I was eating less and less meat. And then one day I said, well, I guess I'm a vegetarian. Okay. Here's what I'm eating, you know? And um, so, so not only was I learning to cook, but I was sort of figuring out a way of cooking for myself and figuring out the kind of food I wanted to eat. And just as there weren't really restaurants for us at that time, there really weren't cookbooks for us either uh, for vegetarians. There were a couple of books, and there were some fascinating and really interesting books like uh, Diet for a Small Planet, but that was a book of social science and philosophy with some recipes, and the recipe part of it, as Frankie admits to this day, was not its strongest suit, you know? So what was really out there in terms of cookbooks was pretty much this kind of do this because it's good for you, sort of earnest kind of approach and not really fun or delicious. And me, being a hedonist, um, I kind of, you know, wanted to really enjoy myself and have a lot of fun and eat wonderful, delicious, voluptuous food. Yes. (laughs) So I kind of had to develop my own style. Now, I was a college student. I was going to UCLA uh, in the film department. And you know, hanging around with other penniless college students and I'd be doing some cooking in whatever apartment I lived in and they'd come (laughs) over and they'd eat my food and they'd say, oh, Anna, your food is really good, you know? You should write a cookbook. Okay, now, I'm like 19 or something, right? Yeah, this is the part I can't believe. Well, gee, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't I do that? You know, when you're that age, you don't stop to think, that something might be like really hard or maybe you could work on it for years and it could go nowhere or that you don't know what the hell you're talking yes. about. Yes. You, you don't stop to think about any of those things. You're just like, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't I do that? So, of course, now that I'm a grown-up and I've had kids of my own and I've raised them and I've seen them go to college and, and I've seen them hanging around with their friends, I realize at that point, Anybody who gave them a home cooked meal, they would have said that too. You know? Yes, I mean they would have, they would have like you know fallen down in rapture for anybody who basically fed them. But you know, I didn't, I didn't have that perspective then. So um, yeah, so I started working on a cookbook, and that is what became the Vegetarian Epicure. And it, it was just one of those things, you know. I sort of mainly finished that book, and through amazing stroke of luck. I was able to uh, connect to an agent in New York. This is just complete luck that I knew somebody who knew somebody, you know? Wow. It's just one of those things. And so that manuscript did get into the hands of somebody who could look at it and say, oh, you know, well, why don't I try 
sending this around to a few people, and she did. And one of the people that she sent it to was Judith Jones at Knopf. Wow. And Judith, who was Julia Child's editor, famously, but also the editor of many interesting people, uh, looked at it and said, this is the voice that we need right now. This is the new, fresh approach. We need this. We're going to publish this. Wow. I had no idea. When I tell this story now to friends of mine who are also food writers and have cookbooks, they want to kill me, basically. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, because they go like, how did that happen like that? And you didn't even, like, you know, have to, you know, go crazy for years trying to find somebody wow. to look at your manuscript. That's awesome. And I tell them, don't hate me because believe me, I have been beat up so much in the film business <laughs> that it more than makes up for it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, but that was, that was an amazing moment. And the book was published and it became a huge bestseller. Yes. It became like, and of course I didn't know I was just going to school. I mean, this is pre-internet and all of these things. Yes. And back in the dark ages of not the digital world as we know it today. And I'm just, you know, taking finals and making my student film and like going to classes and, you know, and all of a sudden I get a royalty check and I go like, what? I get like, actually get more money here other than that little advance I got. Oh, wow. wow, this is great. Yeah. You know? And then it, it just grew. It grew. And thank goodness because it really got me to graduate school. <laughs> paid for my thesis film. So that was a good thing. Um but that's how I got started. It, it was just one of those things where I was very interested in cooking. I was learning to cook and I was finding a type of food that that I loved that would be delicious, but that was vegetarian, but not in any way about self-denial. And, and I was interested in it and I did it, but I never looked at it as a, as a career. I looked at it as something I was doing while I was in film school and while I was doing these other things. And in a way it's kind of stayed that way for the, the ensuing decades. Um, and I, and you know, I, I've kept writing about food, not constantly. I only write a book or write an article or something if I think I have something to say. You know, it's not like a commodity for me. Like some people, like, okay, I got to get a book out every year and it's promoting my TV show or whatever. Yes. <laughs> no. And that, that's not what I'm doing. So there might be 10 years or 15 years from one book to the next and I'm busy with other things. You know, if I really have something to say, then I write another book, and I really felt like I had something to say with mm. this new book, with Vegan, Vegetarian, Omnivore. So I, I took time off from everything else and really worked on it. Wow. Well, this is a sensational story. I mean, the way you got started. Just out of curiosity, how did Vegetarian Epicure uh, get the title? Did you title that, or did they I suggest did. that? Yeah. You did? No, no. No, I did. I came up with that because I thought, I, I, I want to tell people it's vegetarian, but I really want to also say something else here. I want to say the idea here is that it's good food. That's my main goal, my starting point, and I hope my end point is that it's delicious food. And the word gourmet had been overused, I thought. It had been used so much that it sort of started to not have that much meaning anymore. Wow. So I thought, what's a better word? Well, I'm a writer, you know, so yes. I, like I like, think about words. <laughs> 
So Epicure it was. And do you think because you were young and because you were learning that it was that mindset that helped you create it in such a way that it was a good introduction for people to begin to cook vegetarian? I think that's probably part of it. I think that's part of it. I think that there were a lot of people my own age at that time who were becoming vegetarian. And so there was a a real need for it, you know, that people really wanted something like that. This came along at the right time because I was part of a generation, uh, and whether you're thinking about that or not, you reflect the geist of your time and you reflect the feeling of your time. And the big question is, are you a tiny bit ahead of the curve or a tiny bit behind the curve, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, right? That's right. right? That's, what it, that's what it often just comes down to. I think that my concerns were a lot of the same concerns that a lot of people my age had, but also people like good food. That book did not sell a million copies only to vegetarians. And I've had mail and comments from people over the years and the decades talking about how much they love that book and how much they cooked from it and they love this recipe or they love that recipe or they we make that Russian vegetable pie every single time for so-and-so's birthday or, you know, I get comments like this. It was just a whole lot of good food. So there was that too. And cooked by somebody who was not a professional. So everything about it was completely doable for anyone. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that Russian vegetable pie because I uh, sent the word out to my garden blogging blogging community and I said, hey, I'm interviewing Anna Thomas tomorrow. Do you guys have any questions or comments? And uh, I had somebody write back and said, that Russian vegetable pie. (laughs) It's just, you can't make it up. That's hilarious. People still comment about these things. I know. I'm going to have to. I don't think I've made it in like 30 years, but I'll have to do it again. Oh, my gosh. Anna, you have got to make that. That's like one of your signature dishes, is it not? I know. It really is. It's so good. I remember it very well. It's layered with things like sautéed cabbage and sliced hard-boiled eggs, mushrooms, all these different things oh. in a in a big pie. And it really is pretty fantastic. <laughs> when I think about it, I'll tell you what. When I come out to Minneapolis to do an event, we'll make a Russian vegetable pie out of stuff from your garden. How's that? Oh, my gosh. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I'd love to. I'd love to. Okay. Well, I tell you what, and I have a a woman here in town who has her own olive oil shop, and she has a growing connection uh, to a grower in Italy, and he Uh gets her this amazing olive oil and balsamic, and it's just such high quality. Once you've had it, you you can't handle anything else. So we'll have her come over and she'll add. Oh, my gosh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, a good olive oil can change your life. Oh, yeah. She gave me a tasting after my garden tour, and I was just falling over. I mean, my my friend yeah. who's married to a Persian was just like, I need to buy some of this. And she was prepared to sell her one bottle, and she goes, no, I'm buying oh. all of them. She goes, I'm 
buying everything you brought. So yeah, it was just tremendous. So one of the first things that I noticed is I was reading your online reviews. Um, I love to read reviews. I love to read what people are tweeting about. And when it comes to your book and your work, people are so emphatic and so loving. And I was struck by how many people said, I learned to cook from Anna Thomas. And now hearing you emphasize the home cook aspect. I mean, it makes so much sense to me. Yeah, I'm one of them, you know. I'm not different. You're not. I, and a lot of times people say, oh, Anna, she's a chef, you know, when they're introducing me to somebody. I go, no, you don't get it. I'm not a chef. You know, I know you're trying to pay me a compliment, but that word actually has a specific meaning, and I'm really a home cook. That's what I am. Um, and and it, it really makes a big difference in how you approach things. And I have friends who are chefs, and I love cooking with them. Well, I'll tell you, I love getting my friends who are chefs into my kitchen <laughs> and watching them. It's fantastic. And also, everything gets really easy for me because they do all the hard stuff. Yes, you know? they're prepping away at But, that. you know, they're great. But what I do is really I'm doing that home cook thing, and uh, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to do. And you do it, too. I know. You yes. do it with your kids, right? Yes. You cook yes. with your kids. Yes. You bring them in the kitchen with you. Yes. Those kids are going to grow up knowing that home cooking is a great thing and it's accessible and it's basically as easy as you want to make it or as elaborate as you want to make it. There's, there's what I call weekend cooking, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where you just go, I'm going to do this big complicated thing, you know, and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to spend all Saturday afternoon doing it. <laughs> great. Right. You know, that's a whole other thing. It's fun and it's just wonderful. But you can also do very simple things and you do it with your family. And it's it's a gift, really, to give to your kids because it empowers them. I worry a lot about the state of home cooking right now. I'll tell you, I'll get on my little soapbox here for a minute. Oh, please do. Food TV. And I'm guilty. I've been on food TV as a guest on some shows, and some of these people are great. They're wonderful. But the whole phenomenon of food TV really worries me. The Food Network and the, um, what is it, two or three of them now. Anyway, people sit and they watch these shows, and they look at them, and they think it's great, and then they order out, you know? I mean, it really creates this this uh, message that cooking is something that's done on TV by professionals Mm. instead of cooking is just something that goes on every single day in your house and you can do it. And it's just part of your daily life. So it is that message that's constantly there, the larger message of this is something that happens on TV and that's done by special people, by professionals Hmm. who know things that you don't know. I think it's kind of changing how people feel about home cooking. So I think it's wonderful that you bring your kids in the kitchen with you and cook with them. And I mean, my kids have been in the kitchen with me from the time they were tiny. And it doesn't even matter if they seem interested in cooking and they want to do it. I never make them do anything. But anytime they're interested, it's like, oh, I want to do this. Okay, here, pull up a step stool and get up on it and stir the risotto for 20 minutes. That is the perfect job for you, you know? And they realize it's not mysterious. It's not some esoteric thing that only somebody else can do. Anybody can do it. And it's very satisfying. So I do think that there's something really valuable about home cooking. And if you're a gardener, 
and you're growing things and then bringing them to the kitchen and cooking those things, it increases that effect exponentially. You're so close to your food in a way and understanding where it comes from and having that sense of, of empowerment that you're doing it. I just think it's fantastic. I've only gardened with vegetables and herbs a little bit, but whenever I've done it, I've just been so thrilled with myself. Wow. <laughs> whenever I've grown those great tomatoes. Absolutely. Or, you know, it's just been so exciting and wonderful. I encourage that in every way I possibly can. And you know, the other thing about cooking and why I love it so much, I realized I had an epiphany at one point. You know, I'm a creative person and I work on creative projects, right? Mm -hmm. I write scripts. I make movies. It takes years. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you start writing a script and, and you're on draft six at some point, and then you're trying to raise the money for that movie or get it sold to a studio or to a production company. And then, you know, if you're lucky and you get a green light and it's going, then it's another year of production and then you're in post-production. And then, you know, by the time you get to that point where you get the satisfaction, the created thing being there and being, you hope, enjoyed by others, you know, it's like you're practically dead. Oh so my with cooking, it's this wonderful experience. You have the idea, you think about it, you put a few things together, you do some work, you do your little creative process, you gather a few friends around, you sit down, you eat, you enjoy it. It all happens in the space of one day, and it's so exciting and satisfying when you have that whole creative process in a short space of time like that. We take it for granted. We, we, do. we don't think about it. Yes. But... Well, but it really is great. Don't you have fun when you sit down with your friends or your family and you cook something wonderful and everybody's going like, oh, this is so good. And you're all having a good time together. Yes, absolutely. And I love the generational aspect of it. You know, I'm a amateur genealogist. So the thing that I thought was extremely charming and touching about vegan, vegetarian, omnivore is the fact that you tell about your family in such a loving and respectful way. And you can't help but feel like you're part of the Thomas family, you know, reading this book. And when you were talking uh, just a minute ago about having my kids cooking with me, you know, that's important to me because I want them to learn how to cook at a much younger age. Certainly don't wait till you're 40 to start figuring this out. (laughs) Um, But there was a little passage and it was right where you were talking about pasta, polenta, and risotto. And at the very end, you were were referencing how this amazing, uh, you know, pasta that you have made, you were uh, peeking over your aunt's kitchen table to learn. And then you said, and I'm going to quote here, it says, uh, my son, Teddy picked something up peeking over my shoulder. Basically he, he made a penne. Is it Arabiata. Arabiata. Okay. A, a penne arabiata. Ara, yes. A penne arabiata, his own way, starting with deeply caramelized onions and then adding garlic, hot peppers, and tomatoes. And as I was eating with him, I realized that this was his own intuitive Polish-Italian fusion. And I thought, you know, um, it's not just the table prayer that gets passed down, the way the food gets yeah. passed down, and then the way that the food, you watch your children make it their own when they add yeah. something or they don't. And it's just got to bring tears to your eyes sometimes, doesn't it? It's so great when that happens, isn't it? It's so wonderful. And you realize that this is how things 
stay alive. And this is how our sort of our personal family histories and our cultural histories in a big way are carried through little everyday things like this, but that are so important. I mean, we eat every day. Yes. And food is such an enormous part of our cultural orientation and feeling and and the histories of our families. And we think about these things. I learned these things picking up at the table when my Italian aunt was making all these incredible little pasta shapes. Mm-hmm. And then my son saw me do things, and then he just started doing things his way. And, and you know, someone else will carry on and add their own ideas to it. And that's the thing I talk about, too, when I talk about my Christmas Eve, because that's a very ritualized meal. It, it really, you know, has so much tradition attached to it. And yet things have changed over the years with the people who are gathering together to have that meal and that celebration together. So I always say, you know, you want your food to have a past. That is wonderful. But you also want it to have a future. And that's why we think about these things. And it's the mixing of both because you you also mentioned that there was a quote that I loved where you were talking about how, you know, I mean, how many Christmases have you had, Anna? I mean, and you start thinking about how this year the things that you pick for Thanksgiving or Christmas and it's a, you know, kind of a, a hodgepodge of some of the dishes throughout your life that you want to, you know, serve a at a special influ- time. Yeah, a lot of influences have come into that. And and all of the choices that are made are made based on who you want to have there and the people you love. When my son Teddy became vegan when he went to college, you know, I had to alter some of these recipes a little bit. It was really interesting. Some of them turned out better that way. That famous chopped vegetable salad that my mother literally made from the time I can remember it was a recipe that came over from Poland with her. Hmm. Uh, not a recipe, really, just a sort of a, a thing that, that she knew that she had learned from her family. And I always used to make it with the hard-boiled eggs chopped into it and uh, this mayonnaise sauce. That's a fantastic salad, by the way. It looks like a potato salad, but boy, when it explodes with flavor in your mouth, it's a whole other party. Wow. Um, because it has like eight different vegetables in it and pickles and and uh, apples and all sorts of things. It's mm. crazy. Um, so I started making that salad because that's sort of like it's not Christmas Eve unless we have that dish, you know, yes. <laughs> one of those. And I started making it without the eggs and with a sauce that I made, you know, with olive oil and lemon and not an eggy mayonnaise. Everybody liked it better. Everybody. Whether they were a meat eater or a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever they were, they liked it better. So things evolve. And it's interesting when things evolve. But but it's great when things become traditions because of the people you love. Yeah. And the people you're sharing those things with, those foods. Well, your newest cookbook, uh, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, uh, you talk about in the introduction encountering this woman who was basically freaking out because <laughs> it was yeah. holiday time <laughs> and she just did not know what to do. Can you share that story? Because it really was so inspirational for you. You know, it's interesting because I've had so many people share these kinds of laments with me. And, you know, people find out that I write about food, and then they start, like, immediately talking to me about their food problems. I don't know what to do. 
I have to have the family over for, that was the case with this woman. We were in the Union Square Market in New York, and I was with Maria Guarda Schelling, my editor at Norton, and we ran into this woman who was somebody Maria worked with, actually, at the office. And the minute she knew who I was, she started talking to me about this. Oh, what am I going to do? I have to have everybody over for Thanksgiving this year. I don't know what to do because this one doesn't eat that and that one eats only this and this one wants something else and that, you know, and I just want to give up. I just don't know what I'm going to do for them. And I just want to like, maybe we'll just go to a restaurant. And I thought, oh no, this is terrible. (laughs) This should not be. And also the irony of it is we're standing in the Union Square market (laughs) in New York, surrounded by this bounty of gorgeous produce. And she's talking about how she doesn't know how to feed her family at Thanksgiving. So the conjunction of those things, you know, was making my hair catch on fire. (laughs) And I, I, you know, I didn't. And I said, no, don't give up on it, please. You don't want to like not have your family over and not have everybody gather at the table together. This is a wonderful holiday. It's a wonderful thing to do. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. We can't just quit on the idea of hospitality. We can't just quit on it. If we quit gathering together and sitting down at a table together, we're quitting civilization, you know? Yes. And that's not a good thing. So I already was thinking along the lines of this new book, and that moment just sort of crystallized it for me. And I had other moments like that with other people. And I thought, there has to be an approach that works that will help people take some of the stress out of this and give them a little roadmap, a little direction on how to have a meal where you can have different people who eat in different ways, all sit down together. Nobody is picking their way weirdly around the edges of the plate, you know, and feeling sidelined. But at the same time, nobody is feeling guilty. Like somebody's looking at them like, oh, you're eating that. You know, I mean, I don't want either one of those things. Hospitality is very, very important to me. And I think when you gather people at your table, you want to honor everybody who's there and you want to make everybody feel welcome and relaxed and have a good time. And so that's been my entire goal with this book. And what I decided after that conversation in Union Square and many others like it was we are thinking about it backwards. We need to start with the food everybody eats. There's like this basic range from from vegans who eat only plant-based foods to vegetarians uh, who also eat dairy and cheese and eggs to omnivores. And along the way there, there's people who like, well, they'll eat some fish, but not something else. And, you know, and then you get to the omnivores who eat everything. And we grow up in a meat-centric culture, you know, that's just the way it is. Yep. So for most of us, how we're used to thinking about these things is, well, you know, you start with a piece of meat in the middle and yes. then you have some other things on the side. And yep. that's how we were raised. That's how I was raised. Yes. That's how we think. And I thought, well, it's not easy or quick to change your way of thinking, which is why sometimes it's helpful that somebody else give you that little roadmap. But what if we just started our thinking at the other end of the scale? If you start at where we're all used to starting with the meat in the middle and a couple things on the side, what you're doing is you're immediately compromising. You're taking something away. You're substituting something. You're, you know, uh, you're immediately compromising. 
That's exactly um, right. Or yeah. you're making two separate meals, you know, and a lot of people have had to do that. And I hate that idea of making two entirely different <laughs> separate meals. Because if you do that, you know, let's face it, there's always going to be the A meal and the B meal, right? Yes. I mean, yes. That's, that's going to happen. You know, you can't avoid it. Well, who wants to be eating the B meal? That's know? right. It's like, sorry, you get the B meal, you know? Yes. Not me. I want the A meal. So I thought, what if we start our thinking at the other end of the scale, at sort of the greener end, you know, and just start with the food everybody eats and then create a dish or create a meal or a menu or whatever that works, that is delicious, that is appealing, that is satisfying at that end of the scale. And then elaborate. Don't stop there. Elaborate and add just the right amounts of, you know, something from the dairy world or reaching out into seafood or into meat, you know, just ever wider circles of ingredients. But have the central idea be something that everybody eats. And that was the idea that I decided to run with for this book. And figure out meals that are sort of based on an idea that can accommodate the most possible people but then elaborate so people can eat that meal in variations that suit them and nobody feels weird. Those are the things that I tried to do and that I tried to look for. And one of the first things I did, in fact, speaking of risotto and having your kids stir it, (laughs) was a wonderful winter squash risotto. And it was a very rich, delicious risotto that didn't have the cheese mixed into it because it had other ingredients like caramelized onions and roasted squash that gave it this richness. Then you could add Parmesan cheese. You could eat it just the way it was with pine nuts scattered across the top if you were vegan. You could have it with Parmesan cheese sprinkled on top. Or you could have the sautéed pancetta that I passed separately. And you could, you know, drop a nice layer of sautéed pancetta on top of it. And so there were three different ways that you could eat the same risotto. I built a whole little menu around that. And I thought you know, this can really work. And I just did that in with different foods over and over again. Like the idea that you could take something and have it sort of transform in the moment for different people, you know. And, uh, you know, it, people really appreciate it. It makes a very relaxed table. Everybody has a good time. I like it to be a thing we're not really thinking about it. It's just there. It happens. Everybody eats it the way they want to. Well, I love that. I know that your your cookbook is titled uh, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore. And in our family, I'm thinking Will, Emma, PJ, John, Grandma, Grandpa, because uh, we I'm not dealing with vegans or vegetarians, but I am dealing with, you know, picky eaters, uh, you know, kids that oh, won't eat yeah. certain things or, yeah. uh, you know, uh, people in my life that have health conditions and they can only eat this, but they can't eat that. And it does make things, uh, you know, really, really tense. And the tendency is to want to just escape to a restaurant. Well, then they can order what they want. And I loved this philosophy because it really flips everything on its head as far as how you plan your meal. Um, People, I think, really do want to spend that time together. I think this crazy world we're living in. Yes. I mean, I even think for gardeners, you know, we we were at this blogging conference and I said, oh my gosh, uh, you know, what a wonderful thing to be a garden blogger. We can talk about things like growing 
you know, some ornamental or or an edible or something, and it's not going to cause some huge, you know, divide. You know, we can all align around, yeah. you know, the beauty or or the, uh, you know, the yeah. usefulness of something. But uh, do you think that that whole notion of getting people together is really drawing people to this book? I definitely think that's part of it. Because I think people don't want to give up on that. I think there is a need, and people who face this problem, like the woman in Union Square, or like many other people who say, oh, yeah, I have this one in my family and that one, and or friends. They want to invite their friends over. And they know that people eat differently. So I think that people are drawn to the idea that there is a way that you can approach this that sort of makes it possible to have a dinner party and not a breakdown. And that's what I'm trying to help them with. It really reaches a kind of a critical mass around holidays, I think, because people do want to gather together at holidays. They want to celebrate. And very often they want to be at home. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be out in a restaurant. And they want to have relatives from who knows where and the, the big crowd gathering. And that makes it really difficult to go out to a restaurant, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that where people start to, to really get a little bit crazy sometimes. And uh, so that's why I start the book with a small section of specifically holiday menus. It's interesting about that because in a way they're easier. Uh, in a way they're harder because they're more challenging, you know, because there's the, all the tradition and all the expectation and, you know, it has to be this or it has to be that. And there's ritual connected with it. But in another way, it's easier because there's, these are big meals, you know. <laughs> these are big meals already. You already know there's going to be a number of different dishes. And you sort of allow some time to prepare things or other people join in and help and bring things, you know. So that allows you to really have a, a, a sort of a larger arena for flexibility. You can make a Thanksgiving meal that has 10 or 12 different dishes involved, and then it really does become not that hard to make it a meal that can be adaptable to everybody. And actually, long before I did this book, uh, in the new Vegetarian Epicure, which I did in the 90s, when was that? I don't know. (laughs) I I had a menu called Thanksgiving for Everyone. And that was not, it didn't start with a vegan menu. It started with a vegetarian menu that was like a really fantastically delicious standalone menu. If you were a vegetarian, you would not feel like you're eating side dishes, maybe, you know. Okay. You you had a great meal that was built around this polenta torta that was polenta with roasted squash and things in it and, and layers of other sort of an onion jam, and then this thing would be cut in wedges. It was beautiful, and there were all kinds of different roasted vegetables around it, served with it. And and then a lot of the traditional ingredients were used there that people are used to seeing at that time of year, you know, beautiful roasted green beans and cipollini and wonderful sautéed chard and garlic and things like that, and also something with sweet potatoes and a whole array of roasted vegetables around this polenta torta. It was terrific. But you could also have a roasted turkey with any of those things, and it would work just fine, you know? And there were a couple of relishes, and everything sort of worked with everything. So if you were wanting to eat the traditional turkey, 
You could, and it was fine. And you'd have a slice, maybe a small slice of polenta and all these same different vegetables with it, and you'd be really happy. If you were a vegetarian, you had a beautiful, elegant meal, and you didn't have to worry about, you know, anything. And everybody was so relaxed and so happy with that menu. And my husband used to spit roast a turkey. And he wanted to do that. And I said, great, you do that. Yeah. You know, and I'm making these other things and everybody's going to be delighted and happy. So that was kind of a way I dealt with a holiday where I, because I was the one who was tagged for having the big meals because we had a big dining room and, you know, we had the room and I liked to cook and I liked to do it. So it was fine. It was just great. That was something that I worked on long ago was the, the idea of how to do a holiday and we could invite anybody. We didn't have to worry about it. We didn't have to think about it. Everybody was welcome. Everybody came. Nobody felt like, you know, they were, you know, being told they were right or wrong about how they were eating. You know? mm. <laughs> and everybody was happy. So holidays are, are interesting that way. You do have to think about honoring traditions, I think. Traditions are very important. Yes. But there's a way to approach it. You know, there's a way to approach it and make it even more wonderful by making it flexible. And that kind of comes back to that thing I was saying about, you know, you want it to have a past, but you want it to have a future, too. You don't don't want to end up in a restaurant. That's exactly right. Well, I tell you, there is one particular Thanksgiving that I regret not being at your house. And it's uh, not very far into the book. It's on page 22. It's a tremendous true story. And it's simply called The Great Pumpkin. And the picture, I mean, the picture alone, that's going to make all the gardeners just like stop and just look at this. I thought it was amazing. You have got to tell this story. You know, for many years, I always had these giant, big Thanksgivings. But there was this one Thanksgiving when, for various reasons, because of where people were and what was happening, it was just going to be a very small Thanksgiving. It was me and my two sons and I think maybe one or two friends. So it's just going to be this little, little Thanksgiving, very quiet And we were so relaxed. We all just decided to just sort of freestyle it and cook together and do what we felt like doing. And I had this beautiful big pumpkin that a gardening friend had given me, a friend who had a fantastic garden. And uh, the pumpkin in the book is an orange one, but this particular pumpkin that we had that time was a white pumpkin. It was so beautiful. It was sitting on my kitchen counter for a long time like a sculpture. And we said, you know what? Let's cook that. Let's cook that. It was around this time, I think maybe both of my sons were vegan then. And uh, I wasn't, you know, I've gone through different phases in my life. And I'm what I am now is mostly vegetarian most of the time. That's, That's how I define it. You know, so I'm a little more relaxed. But, um... They were both vegan. And I said, great, let's stuff this pumpkin and cook it, and let's do that. And we started putting together a big, gorgeous peel-off, and we added, like, every vegetable in the world to it, nuts and herbs and things, and we made this. We were just making it up as we went along. And then, you know, we stuffed that pumpkin. We put it in the oven. It was. It took hours. It was huge. It took hours to mm. cook. But the house smelled so fantastic. I think we started with a farro and black rice pilaf, and then we added all these fall vegetables to it and filled up that pumpkin. Um, and then we had like a 
really nice, simple, lovely salad of chicory. I think maybe a couple of kinds of chicory. And we had some cranberry relish of some kind. And so it was not a complicated menu as menus go. And we just ate when everything was ready. Nobody was stressed. Everybody was relaxed. We had a wonderful time. I think we had a fantastic dessert, too. I think we had that winter fruit crumble with winter fruits and a ginger snap topping. It was one of the most fun Thanksgivings because, you know, like nobody got freaked out. Nobody was worried about anything. We just cooked together. We laughed. And when it was ready, we ate. And <laughs> so relaxed. It sounds lovely. So, oh, it was great, you know. But, but the big, huge Thanksgivings are also fantastic, you know. But it was nice to know it can happen in a lot of different ways. Well, and I love how you were describing uh, serving this pumpkin because you cut it into wedges and yeah. it would just kind of fall away. They, it looked like a huge chrysanthemum when it when it opened oh. up. You know, we cut these wedges and because it had gotten very soft, the wedges just fell backwards and the, the filling kind of spilled around it and there was this big cloud of steam. I love dramatic moments like that when you're serving a meal and that one was entirely unexpected because we were just experimenting, you know. Yeah, and three gold stars for you. That was awesome. Now, do you think, I mean, you mentioned your boys and, and they're uh, vegan or, or vegan vegetarian uh, and that they are cooking. And do you think that the younger generation is less meat-centric than our generation or generations before? There's definitely a bigger proportion, I think, of the younger population I think it's not just that we're more aware of them. I mean, it's a very active community online. The vegans and the vegetarians are talking to each other all the time on blogs and on Twitter and every kind of social media. And I think it's great. It's still a small slice of the population in general. But I think that one of the things that's happening is that um, more people are just shifting slightly within their own diet the proportion of meat-heavy foods that they're eating to more plant-based foods. In other words, people aren't necessarily saying, okay, I'm vegetarian now or I'm vegan now, but they might eat a number of meals in the course of any given week that don't involve meat. You know, it feels normal to them. They don't really feel like weird about it in any way. So I think that there are different kinds of shifts happening And it's because we're all just exposed to so much more information about so many things. And that's the good aspect of it. But younger people, yes, because they are the digital natives. They have grown up with social media, the Internet, with all this information all the time about everything. So they're naturally just more sophisticated. You know, it's not like it used to be that if you hadn't traveled to other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. you didn't have a clue, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, people sort of travel online all the time now. They get some sense. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's the same thing as really going somewhere else, but they have an idea that there are other ways of doing things in the world. And they try things. They seem open to trying things. People seem very interested in <laughs> in experimenting and trying things. So I think I think that is true, and 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 it's a good thing. Yeah. 
Well, and that's a great segue into my next question about this uh, little piece you wrote called Detente, and it's right before the section on appetizers, and you shared this experience of living in, is it Lumiere? Is that how you say it? Lumiere, yes, in, the, in, in Provence, in the south of France. I mean, my uh, gosh, that, that, did you just feel like you were in a dream? I can't even imagine, but you were invited for drinks with this lovely retired couple. And this man said something to you. I thought it was very yeah. charming and it left an impression with you. Can you share that with us? Oh, it really did. Yes. He was inviting us over just to walk across the courtyard and sit on their terrace with them and have an upper teeth. And he said, Un apertif et la détente entre la journée et le dîner. And he said it like, this is, I'm giving you the truth here, you know? Wow. <laughs> and it means the apertif that you have, that moment where you, where you have your little, you know, your little nibble and your little glass of something, that's the détente between the day and the dinner. Meaning that's the moment when you sort of, leave your work day behind and you, you know, you take a break and you allow yourself to enter the evening and dinner, you know, so <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I realized from that, uh, when he said that he was really saying, you know, put away the tension of the day and come into the evening where you have dinner and it really is, dinner is a wonderful part of your day, and it's important. It's not like you just grab some food and eat it in the car on your way to the next thing, you know? It's an important thing. It's, it's something that you take the time to appreciate. You sit, you relax, you spend time with somebody. And I thought, boy, it's no wonder the French live long, you know? They live to an old age because this is a really important thing that he's telling me about how to live. And uh, it did stick with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's healing. It's healing time. It's nourishing time. um, It's restorative time. It is. It is. And it's community time. Mm -hmm. You know, when you sit down to eat dinner with your family, and especially if any of your family have participated in, in any small way and helped make that dinner, uh, it, it's just a time when you share things or it's a time when you just hang out together. It's a time when little by little in these little daily increments, your really strong sense of family and community kind of forms. And uh, you need that. You need that time. I think it's a wonderful thing. One of the other things I was uh, captured by in your book was the meze table. Is that how you say it? Meze? Yeah, Meze or Metze. Uh, okay. You know, believe they're all they're all okay. I think. <laughs> I was yeah, thinking. I, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I love that. No, I love eating that way because one of the things I love about it is the whole cultural concept of the Metze table, which are all these Middle Eastern room temperature, usually easy to prepare ahead kind of foods that are part of that big appetizer table. Yes. The thing about it is you never order metze for yourself. You know, when you're in a Middle Eastern restaurant, you're in a Lebanese place or a Turkish place or an Armenian place, you don't order metze for yourself. It is a thing that you order for the table. Mm. And I thought, this is 
part of what I'm writing about here is that importance of all sitting down together. And it is impossible to eat metza alone. (laughs) It's not a thing you can eat alone. (laughs) Thus the title of that post. (laughs) That's right. No one eats metza alone. And it's so important because you share and everybody's sharing and everybody's tasting different things and talking about it. And immediately you have that fabric of connection between everybody. So besides the fact that this is like some of my favorite food in the world for how it tastes, uh, I, I also love the the social implication of it. I love that about it. But it is not a thing that you can order one of you know, no, for one isn't. person. Well, and as a gardener, no. I was struck because I thought, hey, if you're a gardener and you're not sure what to do with your garden harvest, this is such a simple concept. These dishes are all separate. Sometimes it's just, oh, yeah. and, and it's vegetable packed. I mean, I was looking through your menu oh, and it's yeah. loaded with veggies and herbs. And I thought, hey, this would be a great place uh, for people to start. And the other thing I thought was great is you said, remember, it's not cheating to visit the Armenian or Greek deli for stuffed binders oh, yeah. or Baklavan, I'm like, yes, because we have a, a grocery delivery company here in town that delivers from this place called Holy Land, and I love their baklava. It's fantastic. Oh. So I'm totally oh, doing Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is totally the way to go. No, I mean, let's say everything is fair game. Everything is okay. And if you're a gardener and you're growing some fantastic tomatoes or you're doing you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you're you're growing your chard or your kale or your parsley or your cucumbers or all of these things, believe me, you're golden. You can go down there to the deli and get your baklava. Nobody can fault you. You still you know, you, you are so producing that meal, you know <laughs> that it's completely fine. Yeah. I think, no, I love to eat that way. And in fact, I was just talking to somebody else the other day. I'm getting really in the mood for having one of those meals that is built around flatbreads. You make a couple of really good flatbreads. And flatbreads are such an easy thing because you do have to turn on the oven, but not for very long. <laughs> because they're, they're thin and flat and they're like done. And, you know, if they're thin enough, they're done in 20 minutes. And then you turn the oven off. So you can make your own flatbreads and sprinkle some of them with satar or just make them with rosemary or whatever, and very, very easy. Or you buy some good flatbreads. You can do that, too. That's okay. I give you permission. Some of the things that I show in that menu is like these different fantastic spreads, like the one with roasted eggplant and poblano chili. And a lot of people grow eggplants. And then they only have like maybe one or two things that they do with those eggplants. They don't know what else to do. But roasting some eggplants when you have a chance to roast them and then making something like this roasted eggplant poblano chili spread, boy, that is delicious. Muhammara, which is made with walnuts and sweet peppers. That's another Mm. really delicious one. And I have the beluga lentil spread in there, which is made with those black lentils. That's a fantastically tasty thing that's made with like four ingredients or something. It's so simple, you know, and you can't believe how good it is, you know. Mm. And then, of course, tabbouleh, that great salad that's made with bulgur. Um, I love making tabbouleh all summer long because I use a whole grain bulgur. 
So it becomes a very nutritious meal in itself. You know, the mezza table is one of these things, like any one small part of it, in a way you could do the flatbreads with a couple of spreads and that could be your meal. Or you could do the tabbouleh with something else and that could be your meal. Or you just combine all these things and you have a party. You know, you add some people. It's absolutely the definition of flexibility. But for gardeners, tabbouleh, get some good whole grain bulgur, it, you don't even have to cook it. You just pour boiling water on it and let it sit for 45 minutes or so. All right. Because it is the ancient Middle Eastern convenience food. The grain is actually cooked and then parched and dried out before. So you're reconstituting it. You're not cooking it. And this is a process that's been done for thousands of years. <laughs> it's not a new thing, but it's an amazing product because you just pour boiling water over it and it reconstitutes and soaks up the boiling water. And then you have this wonderful grain, this whole grain, and then you just go to your garden and you start adding things to it. Lots of parsley, uh, cucumbers, tomatoes. The one I show in the book has garbanzo beans in it as well. So that makes it a super high protein dish, even more than usual. You can do variations on tabbouleh. You add some chopped olives or you add, sometimes I add preserved, uh, salt preserved lemon, a little tiny bit chopped up. Um, there are a lot of different things you can do with tabbouleh. For a gardener, I think that's a wonderful summer thing to sort of have in your repertoire. Uh, and the other thing I show in that um, in that menu picture of the mezza meal is one of my favorites, and that is charred zucchini. The ah. zucchini that's been charred on the grill or in the boiler, if you're not grilling, and then it's dressed with olive oil and lemon and mint. Yes, so and easy to get from the garden. Very, very easy to get from the garden and very delicious and very typical of Middle Eastern food. And this zucchini dish is so good. And a lot of people, you know, they grow their zucchini plants and then there's one night or one day when they just like get out of hand and all of a sudden, you know, you turn your back for 10 minutes and you turn around again and there are these zucchini everywhere and you don't know what to do with them. Yes. And then they get a bad rap because they're so prolific. And then they get a bad rap because you have too many zucchini and you don't know what to do with them. And also, zucchini is a very watery vegetable. Yes, you're so right. People think it's bland because they haven't figured out that it needs to be dehydrated a little bit. You know, it needs to be cooked in such a way that you cook away a little bit of the excess water. Oh. And then the flavor and texture and everything concentrates, and it becomes this wonderful vegetable. And this process of throwing it on the grill or under the broiler, it shrinks down a little bit. It gets a little more dense, you know, and it gets these charred edges and it just turns into this delicious thing. And you put that lemon and mint on it and a little oil. And then sometimes I drizzle it with a little Greek yogurt or or I don't, depends who's eating it, you know, and it's a fantastic dish. So there you go. When you have a lot of zucchini and you're grilling, just grill up a bunch of spears of zucchini and do this, and uh, everybody will say you're a genius. I'm going to give it a um, try. And then, of course, you know, you have a meal like this with all these things, and then you can add things like feta cheese uh, broken up into pieces and just drizzled with a little of your favorite olive oil. Yes. <laughs> that one you're getting from your friend. That's right. And um, I also show a lamb kibbeh. 
Kiva are usually these things that are formed one by one in these little kind of bullet-shaped things or like tiny little meatballs or something. This is an easy one. This is one where you make it in a pie pan and then you cut it in thin wedges. And so it's a lamb dish that you can make ahead and for your omnivores, for your people who really don't think it's a meal unless they have some kind of meat in there, you can offer this as part of the mezza table and it's fine. And there's so much there and so many vegetable-based things there that nobody will have a hard time putting together a wonderful meal. But the person who really wants to have that little bit of lamb with their meal will have it. And it won't kill you to make it because it's the easy version. So that's kind of how I figured that menu out. And that really is a make-your-own-plate kind of meal. And I love those. They're just so user-friendly, you know. Well, they really are. And, you know, I was struck because how I enjoyed most of your cookbook, at least all of the little uh, writing portions, the little personal portions, the stories and the and the little uh, gems that are sprinkled throughout here is I was driving my boys to basketball practice and my daughter, we would keep this in the car and she would read it to us. So I have to say, if you've never considered doing an audio book of this cookbook, I think it lends itself very well because you're so personal. You're as personable in the cookbook as you sound today talking. And I love the little anecdotes. I I love hearing you tell about having it read aloud in the car. I hope it made you hungry. Did it make you hungry? Uh, It made me hungry. It made me realize how much I need to teach myself, how much I need to teach my daughter. Uh, There was one chapter, I can't remember which one we were reading, and she goes, Mom, I feel like I don't know how to cook at all, you know, uh, reading some of this because you're pulling from so many different areas. But at the same time, it was such a great, uh, you know, place for us to just talk in general. I said, oh, Emma, this is no different than when we, you know, do X, Y, Z. And, you know, but it got her very curious about some of these things. And oh, that's great. Yeah. And one of the things that she said is she goes, polenta. She goes, I have said polenta now like six times. She goes, what is polenta? So I said, we are making it. We've never made it. We just never have. Didn't grow up in a family that made it. What is it? Can you walk us through making it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, polenta is like the easiest thing in the world. Basically, it's the Italian version of cornmeal mush. Okay. Now, most of the time when you make, you know, that you know that cornmeal that you buy in the supermarket that you make cornbread with? Yes. You actually can do it with that. Oh. It's not exotic ingredients. Generally, when I make polenta, I buy a slightly coarser grind. And it's also very, very commonly available in supermarkets. And it is called polenta generally on the package. But you can also get like a slightly coarser grind of cornmeal. And that's the basic ingredient of polenta. And then there are a lot of different things you can do with polenta. You can make polenta as a soft dish that you pour in a bowl like you would risotto, and then you put things on top of it. Or you can make polenta and spread it in a pan, and it gets stiff. And then you cut it into pieces and saute it in a pan or put cheese on it and toast it in the oven or something. And it's like sort of like in little sticks or wedges. And a lot of times in restaurants, you see it served that way. Oh, so it's like uh, a little pancake kind of. Uh, not a pancake so much as a bar cookie, you know. Oh, like, really? Okay. Or, or a wedge. Uh, yeah, you, you spread it out in a big sort of in a big sheet pan. And then when it has become stiff, 
you cut it. Okay. And for that type of polenta, you make it with a little less moisture, a little less water or broth. Because you can make it just with water and salt, or you can make it with like a vegetable broth, or, you know, Uh you can add things to it that increase its flavor. And then there's the polenta that I have a recipe for here in this book, which is really going to be, I think, of interest to you gardeners in the Midwest. And that is my polenta that is made with fresh corn. If you grow corn at all, I used to grow some backyard corn once. I remember how good that was to pick Mm. that corn. And when it was just picked, how delicious it was. But if anybody's growing corn in their garden, this is a wonderful dish to make during the summer. It's so intensely delicious because you're making some polenta with the cornmeal, but then adding to it a really substantial amount of fresh corn kernels that you've pureed. You just scrape them off the cob and puree them. And they go into the polenta and also some caramelized onion goes into the polenta. And that is so good. Mm. It is just delicious. And it tastes so rich. And you can add other things. You can add cheese or butter. You know, you're already at a point where it tastes so rich. Uh, that you would not know that it was a vegan dish. In it, you'd, you'd think, oh, this has to have butter or this has to have cheese in it already, but it doesn't. Really? Wow. And so that's a polenta that I recommend for people who, who have gardens. Wow. And then I like to keep it soft, pour it into a bowl, and then maybe have a little tomato sauce or some blistered tomatoes on one side and maybe a handful of arugula or something as a garnish on top. And what a meal. That's a like a simple one-bowl meal, you know? Yes. Well, and I saw you mentioned pine nuts, too, as a potential garnish. I thought, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. it sounded fantastic. And in the fall, if you still have corn in the fall, like the last corn, yes, and you make this and you have a mushroom ragu, that's a fantastic oh. combination together. That is really a great combination. Wow. That's a stunning, stunning recipe. Is it one of your favorites? I, it is. I love that. I love that. And I love mushrooms, you know, in any kind of Mm. form. So, yeah. Well, in the summer and in this heat in particular, it would not be fair to not talk about your farmer's market tomato salad. We are, you know, we're at the point where people are starting to put up pictures of their garden harvest and the tomato pictures are some of my most favorite things to see, all the different things that are, are being grown out there. And, you know, my friends are taking pictures and I saw a beautiful Japanese white egg eggplant was the variety. Mm-hmm. And then all yeah. these beautiful tomatoes are coming in. And I loved it because you said, just go to the farmer's market and pick your favorite mix. And then yeah. you bring them home and you whip up this salad and you said, add bread, wine, and cheese, and you're done. You have supper. That's right. Can you walk us through? You are through? done cooking. Yes. Can you walk us? <laughs> yeah, you're done cooking. It doesn't even feel like yeah. cooking. It just feels like combining. So you you get all your favorite varieties of tomato. How do you put it together? What What's, if I was standing beside well, you? Well, I love purple cherries, for example. And I love those golden tomatoes. And I love, there are different varieties of golden tomatoes. There are several different kinds. They're usually less acidic and the purple cherries are a little more. I also love early girls. I oh. love early girls. And big beef, those are terrific. And lots of different kinds of cherry tomatoes, from the little teeny, teeny, tiny grape tomatoes to, you know, the much sort of fatter, longer ones. 
So I just go and I see what's there, what looks good, what appeals to me. I buy a few different varieties of tomatoes. I come home, I slice them up or cut them in wedges or leave the cherry tomatoes whole, whatever looks good to me. I tear up some fresh basil, Mm -hmm. um, leave a few sprigs or leaves whole just so you can throw them on top for just sheer exuberant beauty. And then I just take a big platter and I arrange all these uh, all these tomatoes in some kind of way, just sort of layer them on there in some way that looks really pretty and throw that basil all over them, drizzle them with that extra good olive oil, yep. a little tiny touch of vinegar. It can be it can be red wine vinegar, it can be balsamic, and not too much, just okay. a little. And then sprinkle on some good sea salt and you are done. Pepper if you want it, you know? I mean, that's it. It really is that simply. The whole thing with good cooking, to a very large extent, with good home cooking especially, is just go and find those good ingredients. When you have a great summer tomato, a great backyard tomato, or a great tomato from the farmer's market, that is the best thing in the world. You don't want to do too much to it. It's fantastic. It's it's perfection already. You That's don't want right. to mess with it too much. I make that salad and then, yeah, a nice crusty loaf of bread, maybe a piece of cheese, glass of rosé. Perfect. All right. That sounds fantastic. Happening. Let's do it. <laughs> with the heat wave, you specifically recommend your white gazpacho with cucumbers and grapes. And yeah. I yeah, want to make this Friday night when my husband comes home. And I want the kids to make it because it's stuff they understand. You know, they know what a grape is. Yeah. They know what a cucumber yeah, is. And I thought, we're going to make their very so first easy. cold soup yeah. together. Walk us through That's this. Right. And it's beautiful. I mean, the way you've drizzled the olive oil and the nuts on top. I oh. thought, oh, my gosh, this looks fantastic. Can you walk it us through that? It is a beautiful soup. It is a beautiful, beautiful soup. I've posted it on the Twitter account recently. First of all, it's not really a gazpacho and it's not really white. But, you know, who cares? Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's delicious. Uh, yeah, essentially, this is a smoothie that you put into a bowl, okay? It's a savory smoothie that you put into a bowl. That's what a cold soup is huh. in general. So sure. most cold, a lot of cold soups, you don't, you don't cook them. There are cold soups that you cook and then chill. But there's this whole category of cold soups, including every kind of gazpacho, that you don't cook. So this is very, very easy, and you just basically cut up cucumbers, you squeeze some lemon juice, you have your grapes, you put everything into the blender, you have a little tiny bit of fresh green chili that you add to that, and you blast it all in the blender with a little bit of yogurt. And when it's really nice and smooth, you pour it out into a bowl, or you taste it while it's still in the blender, and... Does it need a tiny bit more salt or a little bit more lemon? You know, you balance those flavors. Maybe a few more grapes if you want it more sweet. Yes. Maybe a tiny bit more serrano chili if you like that little pop of a slight spiciness behind the sweetness, you know, and the salt. It's a great combination. Then you get it really cold. You put it in the refrigerator and you just let it get really, really cold. In fact, I like to put it in the freezer for the last half hour or or 45 minutes. Oh, that's a great tip. And give it a little stir, but like let it get extra cold. And then you pour it into bowls and you garnish it. And that's where you can have fun because it's like painting on this sort of pale, almost white, slightly green. It depends what kind of cucumbers you use. If you use the kind of cucumbers that you peel, it really is white. 
But if you use the ones, the Persian cucumbers, where you keep the peel, then it's more of a very pale green, okay. really a be- beautiful looking thing. Wow. And and I like to throw a few sliced grapes on top. I like to batter a few um, sort of coarsely chopped almonds across the top and then drizzle it with that extra fantastic olive oil. And that's how I serve it. And it is always a hit. Always a hit. And when it's hot and muggy, this is like the most beautifully refreshing thing that you can eat. Okay, you talked me into it. We're doing it. And I I just thought it was such a great, easy, simple, yummy thing that the kids could help with and would make complete sense to them. And when I say that it's a smoothie, they're going to get it even more. They're going to be totally on. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's a smoothie. You just put it in a bowl instead of in a glass. And then they can kind of paint with the olive oil or or the yeah. or nuts of some kind. I love it. It's going to be fantastic. You know, uh, something I know my gardening friends would would just absolutely detest if I did not talk about, and that is um, all of your fantastic ideas about pestos, spreads, and dips. I have taught my kids how to go out and harvest basil and how to make our basil pesto, which is, I mean, that's the only thing I know how to make. And so we make it yeah. and we make it in droves. And that's a classic and it's great. And it is. It's fantastic. But, you know, gardeners typically, unless they're just going to grow something for sport to see what it's like, you know, I'm going to try to grow mm-hmm. an eggplant just to see what it's like. They're not planning on cooking with it. The longer they garden, they really just grow things to make certain recipes. So it's it's great, yeah. you know, when we can expand, you know, what they're using these things for. And there were three that really caught my eye. One was your carrot top pesto. And of course, that spoke to me because you're using the greens on the top of the yeah. carrot. And the other one was, uh, is it Mojo Verde? Mojo Verde, yeah. Mojo Verde. And then this garlic cannellini spread. Could you talk yeah. to us about yeah. those? What you just named that with one of those big flatbreads, that's dinner. You know, and and that's a wonderful dinner. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that can be one of those things where the appetizer course, ah, who needs anything else? Just keep eating more of this. It is fan- I mean, it um, looks fantastic. Yeah. The mojo verde is a recipe that you take that to any party or serve that when you have people over and you will be mobbed with people wanting to know what it is and what the recipe is. Okay. Because... They expect it to taste like, um, it looks like a pesto, like a basil pesto, but it's got a very, very different flavor and feeling to it. It really pops. It is made with a combination of parsley, cilantro, and mint. Okay. So you have really quite large amounts of all of those herbs, and then garlic and some Fresh green chili, you can do it either with serrano or with jalapeno. And always with chili, you add it a little at a time because they vary so much. Okay. And you want this to be a little bit spicy, but not kill you, you know. Okay, yeah. And then you grind all this stuff up together, olive oil. I think there's some nuts in it. And that's it. Not even lemon juice, just salt. That is so good. Oh, here's the other thing. Mojo Melve is a Spanish recipe. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm just like remembering it okay. right now. Okay. <laughs> but Mojo Melve is a Spanish uh, uh, idea. They have a million kinds, like gazpacho, you know. Okay. Um, and you add a little bit of bread, of baguette, that you soak in olive oil and red wine vinegar. 
just like you do for gazpacho, for like a tomato-based gazpacho, and you add that, and that gets ground up into it. That's a very Spanish kind of thing. But it's mostly parsley, mint, and cilantro, and that little bit of chili and quite a good amount of garlic. And the flavor of this just sings. It is just so crazy. People love it. I have heard, what is this, so many times when people taste it. Yeah, it's fantastic. So if you're a gardener and you have those, those are all like weeds, basically. (laughs) They're easy to grow herbs. You can do this and you'll be, believe me, you'll be having a good time. It'll become part of the repertoire forever. And then the carrot top. Go ahead. uh, Yeah, the carrot top pesto, again, for gardeners, it's perfect. Because often when you go to get carrots, if you're getting them in the store, they might not have their tops at all. Or if they do have the tops, sometimes they're, you know, they're looking a little tired, beat up, and you don't really want to, you know, make anything with them. But sometimes when you buy your carrots at the farmer's market and you get those beautiful, bushy, green tops, or if you're a gardener and you're pulling them up out of your garden, those greens are delicious. They're good. And, you know, it's a shame to throw them away. So I was really very, very happy when I figured out how to make carrot top pesto. And I add different herbs to it. It'll be like 75% carrot tops and then maybe 25% basil or mint or a combination of the two or, you know, other things. And and then you just make it like any other pesto with some walnuts and some olive oil and a little bit of garlic. And that is a delightful thing to have. The only thing is you do have to strip those greens off of that heavier stem because that gets a little bit woody. But all gardeners will know this. Yes. So that's another delicious one. And you use something that a lot of people throw away. They do. And then the cannellini spread. I like to cook beans. I like to have cannellini that I have cooked because it's one minute of actual work. You know, I mean, you put the beans in a pot with water and you let them simmer and then you add some salt at the end, you know. So it's just a question of planning ahead. And I do like to cook beans from fresh dried beans. In other words, get a good quality of dried beans. But you want to do this on the spur of the moment and you haven't thought about it and you haven't cooked your own beans, it's okay. You can take a good quality can of cannellini, drain it well, rinse those beans, and you can do this with with canned beans as well. And again, it is so easy. In Mm. under 10 minutes, you've got this. You know, lemon, olive oil, a little bit of garlic, some good sea salt, and maybe some fresh thyme chopped up and mixed in there. And wow, it's so delicious. And also, I might add, a really powerful protein hit. For your people who aren't eating meat, if you have something like this, that's something you can relax about the rest of the meal because you're not looking for that protein. It is already being delivered right here. That's kind of the interesting thing about some of these appetizers. You can you can sneak a lot of nutrition in there well, and all while people are having their drinks. Yeah, which is great. And I didn't notice until a couple of days after I'd started reading this that each one of these recipes starts out with a little bit of a, a little sign. Like on these, it says vegan under each. Yeah, yeah. No, I, we try to identify everything for people to make it really easy. So we have a little, a little tag. Yeah. Uh, 
It'll always say vegan or it'll say vegan or vegetarian if there are like a couple ways to do it or it'll say uh, vegetarian or omnivore or vegan. You know, it'll say what, you know, what the recipe is going to give you, what the options are going to be. Can we uh, take a few minutes as well to talk about risotto? Because that's one of the harmony foods. I mean, who doesn't love risotto? Yeah. I, I've never Everybody made it. it. Yes, oh. the, the kids love it. We we do eat it. I just don't make it. So walk mm-hmm. me through making it. Is it hard to make? No, it's not hard to make. I, I don't know what all the mystery is about risotto, uh, but uh, it's not hard to make at all. You start by sauteing a little bit of onion or some shallots or something, all right. and then you add the rice. You just have to have the right ingredients. You have to have the right kind of rice. Arborio rice is very commonly available now, so it's not hard to get the right kind of rice. You put that in the pan, you stir that around for a moment, then you throw in a little, like a half a glass of white wine, you let that steam away, and now you just start adding one ladle after another of the hot broth that you have ready, and I use vegetable broth, some people use chicken broth, you can do it either way, you just keep putting in about a cup or so of broth and stirring, and when that has been absorbed, you add the next cup or so of broth. And then somewhere along the way, depending which kind of risotto you're making, you will add other ingredients, like you'll add your chopped tomatoes if you're making tomato risotto and your herbs, or you'll add your roasted squash and caramelized leeks or whatever, if that's the risotto you're making, or you'll add your sautéed spinach that's been chopped up. Depending what kind of risotto you're making, you will add in those other flavoring ingredients. But basically, you're just adding liquid and you're stirring in this pan until it reaches the right consistency. And when it's exactly al dente, perfect to the tooth, not mushy, but not crunchy anymore, you know, yes. you're done. And That's everybody it. better be sitting at the table waiting at that moment. <laughs> but, that, but but it's easy. I always say, like, I don't know, you know, why people get, get stressed about risotto. It's a one-handed dish. You can have a glass of wine in the other hand, you know. Okay. And it's very easy and also wonderful to have kids help with it. That's a great job for a seven- or eight-year-old child. Perfect. I want to help you cook. Okay, you are in charge of the risotto. Do this, stir it with this wooden spoon, and when it gets to looking like this, you tell me and we'll add some more broth. That child feels important and engaged and involved, and they learn that you can make delicious food and that it's not complicated and it's fun, and that's a great thing for a child to help you with. Yes, it is. Well, before we close, you have some wonderful desserts that you also featured. I was actually surprised that there were desserts in this cookbook, but there are. And uh, one that caught my eye was the dark chocolate almond bark. But could you share some of your favorites with us? Well, you went right to the... (laughs) (laughs) You went right to the heart of the matter. (laughs) Let's go right to the dark chocolate. (laughs) That's right. We all know what we're talking about. Anna, you um, said earlier you were a hedonist, so I'm a, I'm joining uh, you there on that on that train. I so. got I couldn't have a book that didn't have some delicious chocolate in it. Yes. I just couldn't, you know. So I do have that recipe, and and it's a very easy thing to do to make that uh, dark chocolate bark. Uh, I put I think I put uh, ginger or dried cherries in it, and, and toasted almonds that have been roughly chopped up, and 
Um, the whole key to that one is, of course, you have to get really good quality chocolate. Sure. You can't just go and buy some supermarket chocolate and think it's going to be good, you know? Yeah. You know, you have to make a little effort and get a really good chocolate. But luckily, there are a lot of good chocolate available now. So you can get Scharfenberger or Valrona or, I mean, there's a lot. I don't want to start naming too many brands, but there are a lot of good chocolate around. Sure. Uh, Trader Joe's has some good chocolate. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's a very easy thing to do, and I love that chocolate bark. It's fantastic. But most dessert recipes are, or a lot of them, about half of them are fruit-based, because one of the things that I was trying to do with the dessert recipes was offer recipes that start vegan and can be expanded into the vegetarian zone with dairy, but they can be delicious at their starting point, at their vegan point, and have that flexibility. So I have things like, I mean, it's summer, so I have to say peach and basil sorbet. Mm. That is one of my, I love that. That really is one of my favorites. Um, Fresh peaches, fresh basil Mm. together. And if you have a little, you know, if you have a little ice cream maker, one of those things where you put the container in the freezer for a day and, you know, you make it yourself and it's so fresh tasting and wonderful. And then, you know, you can add a shortbread cookie or you can have biscotti with that. That's fantastic. That that peach and basil sorbet and some almond biscotti, really Mm. wonderful. You know, you can elaborate these things. Uh, On the other hand, if if it's winter, I would say orange slices in orange caramel. I have a picture of that in the book, and I can just stare at it for hours. Wow. <laughs> but the orange caramel that you make with orange juice into sort of a, a special caramel sauce, oh. and you pour it over these chilled orange slices, that is so good. Or here's another one for winter. Who has apple trees? Or fall, really. This is perfect for fall when you still have like the tail end of your basil on those big leggy plants, you know, when they're about to die, but they're still making some basil leaves. That's when I want to make apple compote with this basil scented syrup on it. And boy, is that ever delicious. So that's the kind of thing you could add a scoop of vanilla ice cream or you don't have to. So things that kind of are adaptable and can be eaten a couple of different ways. That's what I try to do. I I try to start with the food everyone eats idea, you know. I like to bake sometimes too. And and that fruit crumble with the gingerbread topping, Mm. honestly, you know, there's something about that gingerbread topping. It's great with winter fruit, but you can do it with summer fruit too. I've done it with giant blackberries and things like that. And that gingerbread topping, man, you think you died and went to heaven. Oh my gosh. It's it's pretty amazing. So (laughs) I have to admit I'm getting hungry. I am too. That's a high compliment. Well, I, Anna, I have to thank you for all the time. You've been so incredibly generous with all of the things that you shared with us today. Oh, and this has been fun. I this know has been that, fun for me. Oh, thank you. Well, I know that the gardeners are going to be so interested in getting this book. And, and to thank Anna, please go out and do that. I'm assuming it's at bookstores everywhere, online, Amazon, um, and you have a yeah. website. Your website is vegetarianepicure.com. Yes. Vegetarianepicure.com will take you to my website. And uh, yes, as the weeks and months roll by, I will be posting some some things there and some recipes, sometimes just things that, you know, are, that are new that are coming up. 
That's great. And they can find that on your website and also on your Twitter feed, right? Yes. Twitter and Instagram are both Anna Thomas Cooks. Okay, Anna One Thomas word. Cooks. Anna Thomas Cooks. Yep. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, your Love Soup by Anna Thomas. That's right. Yeah. And you graciously offered to uh, give a, a book away and that you are going to personally inscribe. And then they can feel free to post pictures of their of their garden produce. That oh, about I love to that. Yeah, that's a great use idea. In a recipe. Oh, that's yeah. a great idea. Yes, absolutely. Well, Anna, again, thank you so much. You were so generous and kind to spend this time with us. And uh, well, I tell thank you, you what, Jennifer. It was great. Yeah, your recipes speak for themselves, but your personal touches, I think, are what really make it immensely special. So I really appreciate well, it. I, I appreciate that. And if vegan, vegetarian, omnivore helps people find a way back to a more unified table where they can sit down with anybody they want to without like stressing out about it, I will be happy. Absolutely. Wonderful to be connected again that way. So thank you again for all your time today, Anna. Okay. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Anna Thomas, the author of Vegan, Vegetarian, Omnivore, for being my guest. And wasn't she fascinating? I could listen to her all day long. In fact, she's going to come back and do another show with us and help us prepare our holiday menus. So she'll be on, I think, the week before Thanksgiving, giving us ideas for holiday menu planning, something she is a complete pro at. So I look forward to that. And I also want to thank my team team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ein Kadena, and David Gregerson. I could not put the show together without your help. Just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Anna shared on the show today on the show notes page under the Still Growing Podcast tab on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And don't forget, if you really like the show, I'd like to invite you to join the Still Growing Podcast Group on Facebook. It's a great place to ask questions. You can share your garden stories there like Danny Perkins has been doing and interact with great guests featured on Still Growing and also connect with other listeners of the show. And don't forget, it's also where you can find out information about how to win that fabulous personally inscribed cookbook from Anna Thomas. So please go ahead and check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast Group group on Facebook. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.